Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in Season 10. Our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my god, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. Hello! From the Next Reels Film Board, this is Tommy Handsome with an important announcement. The following podcast includes movie audio clips that contain unbleeped profanity. Such profanity may include... Damn. Hell. Nuts. Butterf***. Ah!
McGee, Doodle, Captain Fuck, and Toot Toot. Here comes the diarrhea parade. Listening discretion is advised. I'm Pete Wright, and I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. I shot Andy Warhol. Is over. The sick, irrational men. Those who attempt to defend themselves against their disgustingness when they see the scum barreling down on them will cling in terror to Big Mama with her big bouncy boobies. But boobies won't protect them against scum. Big Mama will be clinging to Big Daddy who will be in the corner shitting in his forceful dynamic pants. Men who are rational, however, won't kick or struggle or raise a distressing fuss, but will just sit back, relax. Enjoy the show and ride the waves to their demise. Last night I was at Max's Kansas City. That's the chic hangout for the jet set of the world. They called it the factory. Roger Bedeen was there with Jane Fonda. Andy Warhol was there too. A place to create art. I'm writing a play and I want him to produce it. Well, Andy just makes movies now. Be discovered. I did my Kim Novak film, and he was very impressed. And make a scene. Oh, God, I hate morning. It is morning, isn't it? There's a very important TV interview going on right oh, now. Great. Just leave me the script, and I'll make sure Andy gets it. No, 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 no. But in this world where everyone was a superstar... Andy! Andy! I gotta just talk to you for just a minute. It took more than talent to get attention. want to kill all the men in the room? No. I don't think that would be necessary. You know, Andy, I, I really think you ought to produce this play. No? Have you finished it yet? It's way too disgusting. Even for us. So what does it take to get me on TV, huh? If anyone can make you a star, Andy can. I mean, you make you make something out of nothing, Andy. What makes you think Andy Warhol, the greatest living artist of our time, wants to post the ratings of a lunatic? On my way with the I shot Andy Warhol. Yeah, I had to. Yeah, he had too much control over my life. Uh, welcome to I Shot Andy Warhol. The first of our Mary Heron series, kicking off our next series that we're going to be uh, talking about here on the show. We've got three of her films lined up, This American Psycho and The Notorious Betty Page. And why Why did we choose Mary Heron? Um, well, one, she's a filmmaker who makes some interesting films that are worth talking about, and I think we're going to be talking about three of them. And I think that uh, you have a crush on American Psycho. Weird. It's so weird. I have an absolute <laughs> crush on American Psycho. It pushes so many buttons for me. Uh, and so, yes, this was an, this was really a, a shoehorn excuse to get American Psycho in. I had never seen Andy Warhol or Betty Page. Uh, so what do I know? All I know is Mary Heron's awesome. She made American Psycho. Uh, I have loved talking about that movie in the past. I love teaching it. And um, and so it's uh, it's weird. Yeah, we'll see what we'll see what happens. <laughs> we start, however, with uh, with I shot Andy Warhol, the story of uh, Valerie Solanas, and and uh, she told me many times in this movie that I should read her manifesto. I don't know if she told you the same. She if sure you did. got that message she loud did, and clear. Yes, yes. So I did. Okay. So I got the manifesto, Andy. 
that what I read this it was not a quote from the movie, although there are many quotes from from the movie uh, from the manifesto in the movie throughout. Yes. Uh, they, they did use it quite liberally. Did you read any of the manifesto? No. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty rough. <laughs> it's pretty rough. There is one point. If, when you, if, when you if, say rough, d- define rough. Is it just poorly written or is it written in a way where it's just uh, just rage and anger or? She was not a terrible writer. It is. Uh, it's just a little bit mind blowing. If you don't mind, I have another passage I would like to to read to you. Do you mind? Please. It's, please it's do. brief. This, and All it's right. called The Scum Manifesto. Just the to, Scum Manifesto. Yes. <laughs> The scum manifesto. Okay, Um, she is talking a a little bit about you know use of men and and men who are left over after the the culling the purge of the scum manifesto. She says the few remaining men can exist out their puny days, dropped out on drugs or strutting around in drag or passively watching the high powered female in action. Fulfilling themselves as spectators, vicarious livers, or breeding in the cow pasture with the toadies. Or they can go off to the nearest friendly neighborhood suicide center, where they will be quietly, quickly, and painlessly gassed to death. Um, and, and there is a footnote next to vicarious livers that is important. That footnote says... It will be electronically possible for him to tune in to any specific female he wants and follow her in detail, her every movement. The females will kindly, obligingly consent to this, as it won't hurt them in the slightest. And it is a marvelously kind and humane way to treat their unfortunate handicapped fellow beings. I mean, I, I, in, in the forward, in the forward of this of, of this. Uh, piece and, and it's only the manifesto itself is only about 95 pages like yeah. it's it's not very long the forward is half as long as as the the you know the book itself you know it, it talks about how this could be uh, like construed as satire right the scum yeah. manifesto yeah. It could be a satire and and it really could i mean the language is so out there uh throughout this thing that it's it's hard not to read it with a side eye like that the movie does not share that i don't think my impression of the movie is that you know heron's valerie solanas and lily taylor's valerie solanas took this character and this work very seriously and that it was more a sign of her sort of the um, emotional struggles that that made this thing real um i don't know what's your take on it I mean, the the movie, like you said, it has pieces of the Scum Manifesto read by Lily Taylor, shot in black and white, uh, almost like a performance piece, which is a pretty interesting way to kind of get us into that world and her insights, uh, her views and everything. I also think that we need to pair it with the play that she writes, that is the play that she's pushing on Andy Warhol, saying that you'd be the perfect one to direct it. You know, let's let's do this. This was up up your ass. Yeah, up your ass, because the, the they perform pieces of it. Uh, we hear Andy and several of his uh, groupies kind of reading it while they're sitting around in, in the factory and kind of mocking it as they read it. And then you see, on the flip side, you see Valerie and all of her friends, including uh, Candy Darling and a number of others, just kind of performing it much more passionately in a cafe as they're kind of going through it. And you see the perspectives on the way that it can be interpreted because you can just read it and it sounds just like garbage with all this turd eating and everything that's going on. And it's just, it's nonsense. But when they're actually performing it, you go, okay, well, 
maybe if it's read properly, you can see that there might be this angle where she's aware of the way that she's approaching her writing. And when it's interpreted the right way, yes, maybe it is something that can be seen as more intelligent rather than just kind of just the the garbage that other people look at. I have a hard time really clicking completely with it. I can see it being read seriously, but I at the at the same time, I I, I don't know if she's writing it from that satirical perspective. I feel like there's an element of it that's just anger and I don't know. I haven't read all of it. I have a hard time seeing a lot of the intellect coming out of it, though, the satire coming out of it. It just seems like it's just kind of she's just kind of putting all this out there. And I don't know how much clarity I find in it. Well, and and now that I've now that I've seen this and obviously American Psycho have not seen Betty Page, curious how this theme, you know, ties these together. But um, Heron does something really uh, exceptionally well in in Psycho that I think she's doing here. The scum manifesto, and I should say it's it is an acronym, the Society for Cutting Up Men. Um, what the scum manifesto does and her actively sort of promoting it and her, you know, efforts to get up your ass produced by Andy Warhol, all of that. Uh, actually serves to take our protagonist, our main character in in Valerie Solanas, and demonstrate her aloneness, right? Her otherness. She has very few friends, uh, and the the friends that she does have don't seem to really like her very much. It's all sort of associated around their drug use and sex, and her you know her efforts to make a dime as a sex sex worker. She has a unique kind of charisma that establishes connections early on and not strong connections, right? Not connections that seem to, to foster obviously a, a career for her uh, because she's so lost in her own rage that she can't quite get everybody else to buy into. And I think that's an, that's, that's an important sort of trait that, that Heron um, is, I think, pretty good at demonstrating. I don't like Valerie Solanas in this movie. I don't like my experience with her at all, but I do feel like I can empathize a little bit with her uh, living apart. I think that's what this type of movie when it's done well, I think that's the strength of it, because I don't think anyone is really supposed to like Valerie. She's a very unlikable character. She's full of hate. She's full of rage, just disconnected from life. But we see elements of her life that allow us to empathize with how she was raised. I mean, this is a young kid who, you know, ended up, you know, starting to have a, you know, thrust into the world of sex at the age of 13, very young and not in pretty ways. And, you know, has really kind of grown to have this this um, this anger that she really carries with her everywhere. And, it's, you know, she's always upset about stuff. I, I feel like this is an interesting um, look at unchecked mental illness. I don't think it's ever really discussed you know, other than the fact that they do end up putting her in an asylum for the criminally insane, which sounded like straight out of, um, you know, Arkham Asylum at the end when you see that. It's like, really? Wow, that's that's exactly what I thought. I didn't think that they actually called them that, but I guess they did back then. I, I just can't help but feeling like there was more going on with her that um, people just dismissed because because of the way that she just kind of went about her life. But in reality, she 
probably needed more help than she ever got, but people just didn't put put the time or energy in when she was younger. And it just, it led to this uh, kind of this way that she grew up, you know, living, I don't know if I would say homeless, but certainly on the streets. I mean, she was living on a rooftop for a while before she was able to, you know, Candy helped her get into that, that place and then eventually slowly moving up, but um, largely just by prostituting herself and it just wasn't a it wasn't a pretty life and and i think that she took the anger and rage that she felt and she kind of brought it out there through her writing and uh, obviously with her frustration at the kind of the perpetual dismissals by andy warhol you know took it to the worst extreme by trying to kill him and it's it's uh, it's a very unlikable character but I can't help but feel that the way that Lily Taylor performs it, the way that Mary Heron directs it, that we're not meant to find some empathy with her, even if we don't like her. Well, I think that's why Heron picked her, right? That, yeah. That's why she found her own interest in in Solanus as, a, as her protagonist for this thing, because she was at this time in her life and career, she was at a crossroads, too. And sounds like she was feeling alone and she was feeling uncertain and uh, was frustrated about options, you know, what options were open to her and what were not. And I, I think that's a, you know, that's a, it, it makes this great fodder for, you know, uh, creative output. I, I wonder, I, I don't know, I, do you know much about Warhol beyond this film? Are you a Warhol? Are you a Warholic? Warholic? <laughs> Warholic. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I feel like as I watched this movie, I'm like, I feel like I've seen like my perspective. I've never seen any films by Andy Warhol. I've certainly seen art by Andy Warhol. I've never, other than like a bit character, kind of that quirky character in films as kind of played by other people, not Andy Warhol himself. I feel like I've never really known much about Andy Warhol. It's just you know, he's such a presence because the funky art style that he had, like with the Marilyn Monroe's or the Campbell soup cans or whatever it was that that was kind of that Warhol style of art. I I mean, that's really my my sense of him. So I don't know much about him. I'm certainly not a Warholic like some people may be. I guess, you know, if you're a Warholic, you would have watched all of Andy Warhol's sleep. And uh, I have not. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is not uh, that is not something I've done. It is on YouTube, though. You can go get it. Um, I, I wonder how much your experience with the movie and maybe positive experience with the movie is tied to understanding, you know, Warhol and his place in in pop culture, um, because I like you, I've seen the paintings. I've seen some some of his his image work, photography work and, and clips of films. I've never seen an entire film of Andy Warhol's all the way through. And frankly, I've never really been that interested uh i can't say this movie has really piqued my interest in in warhol you know it's obviously this is very much valerie solana's story it doesn't necessarily have to be warhol's story but i think because i find the warholness part of this story shallow i struggle with why valerie went so far as to shoot him like i i just feel like i know it's it's a true story i'm not entirely sure the movie convinced me that it was the next most rational thing for in her head 
to do. I, I saw it as this is just kind of this. She hits this point where she's really spiraling down by this particular point in the film. She feels betrayed by, you know, all these men in her life at this particular point. I mean, she's got this uh, this agent that she's hired, Maurice uh, Garodius, played by Lothar Blue, Blue Toe, who seems to have kind of taken had her sign this this deal and now has all the rights to uh this thing that she's writing and she's very upset by that she can't get a hold of him she also feels betrayed by andy warhol who she thinks has kind of agreed to produce her play even though he never really has and so i think that she's hit this point where she's uh, you know coming up from that place of the scum manifesto and we see it going all the way back to when she started at university of maryland Earlier in the film, um, I think uh, almost uh, 11 years really before she shoots him, really is kind of already in this mental place where men are the enemy. And then with all of the work through Scum Manifesto, we see her a number of times with various Johns as she's prostituting herself out, clearly not having any joy out of it and just looks at men as this, this evil in the world. And and she's just, I think by the time she gets to the end, she's really pinned in by these two guys and she just feels incredibly trapped and and she's not getting the support anymore by by Candy or Stevie. You know, Stevie kicks her out because she has the gun. And I yeah, think they've if, all let her go. Yeah, I think if Stevie hadn't pushed her out in that particular place, I really I kind of I don't know, the film made me feel like I don't think she would have gone to that length. I, I think that because she was just kind of pushed out by every single person and she felt so trapped by these two men. Maurice wasn't around. She went to his office and he was he was out of the country or whatever for a while. And I think Andy was the only one who was around. And I think that she just hit this breaking point and she this is how I interpreted the film. She had to do something. And so Andy was it. He was the one who was around. And he's he's always kind of floating in and out of her life. And he's such a he was so mild the way that he always was kind of there and just kind of like, oh, hey, Valerie, like he never dismissed her. He just was very chill about everything. And the way that it it hit her is like he's as he's as guilty as everyone else right now because he is he's he said he'd produce my play, even though he never really does. He won't give the copy back. That I think was the thing that was infuriating her more than anything mm-hmm. is because she just wanted that copy back and they probably threw it away. And so it just it turned into this breaking point and so she um, that was the one thing that she could do. And uh, that's how I interpreted it. So I, I feel like for me, it I bought into her, you know, boiling over and shooting him. I thought it I thought it was um, I thought it was effective. I, I guess I can see that. I I, um, I think I got I lost track after she went to see the publisher because he I, I mean, he really he's the one who took an active role in taking advantage of her. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, like he he. He duped her. And had he been there, he would have been shot. Right. That's that was how I interpreted that as well. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. All right. All right. And I think I that it. was probably where he she was targeting her energies because of that. He just wasn't around. And he was. OK. Yeah, I can. That makes sense. And, and that all the more, you know, cements the whole notion of her aloneness, the fact that it's her story, not Andy Warhol's, despite. Right. Obviously, what's in the title. He is an important character by accident. Oh, I think absolutely. Yeah. I think that it, it just, it, it becomes that. Yeah. All right. Um, I, I like the way the movie uses time. It's sort of, we get sort of a logarithmic scale time. We get a nice early 
motion and then time starts to compress leading up to the event. Well, and it certainly is one of those films that starts at the end. You know, we see as it opens, we see the body laying on the floor. We see the blood. We hear the voice say, there's the elevator, Valerie, take it. You know, we hear those moments. We see the wig laying on the floor, which I just have to say, I don't know why. I always assumed Andy Warhol just like either bleached his hair or something. I had no idea that he was wearing a wig all of this time. Again, I'm not a Warholic. I, I didn't was... either. Not until I saw your note did I catch that, that yeah. he's wearing a wig. Yeah. I That kind of floored me. I'm like, oh, wow. That totally, yeah. totally surprised me. So strange. Yeah, that was very strange. But so we see these moments. We see her. We see the police walking her out, uh, asking her, why'd you do it? You know, what happened? She's, we see her being interrogated. Then we see her going into the kind of the the place where she's being studied and kind of the the psychiatry and all of that. And at that point, we start like through their conversations, we start getting these flashbacks to her life as a 13 year old. And we see like family home movies and stuff like that. And, and then we jump back to um, University of Maryland, 1957, when she's a student and she ha- hates men and she's, you know, miserable. And then that kind of pushes us forward into these points. And it really does. I mean, it really focuses 66 to 68, that, that period when she uh, meets Andy Warhol and re- really where all of this is, is kind of um, coming to it. The point in the fall of 1968, when she does finally shoot Andy. Yeah. Uh, okay. And the event itself is, is pretty, um, uh, it's pretty low key. She walks in, she shoots him a couple of times, uh, doesn't shoot the assistant guy. And that's what makes me think there's a lot more mental instability, like what was going on in her head, the way that she was like, she would go up to somebody like she was going to shoot him and then she wouldn't and then she would and pull the trigger and, you know, like those different bullets in the gun. Yeah. It's just like it was I had a feeling like there was this mental place that she was in during that period that um, I don't know. I don't think that she was completely there. And it's it's so interesting because it seemed so planned out, thought about. She seemed to like when she was talking to the police, she's just like, yeah, I shot him. And they're like, why? And She's like, I'll I'll get to that. I'm not going to talk about it right now. But there's 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 things, you know, And she had kind of this whole idea. And even immediately afterward, we see her go up to a police officer, give him the gun. She's here. I have this for you. The police are looking for me. I just shot Andy Warhol. And she seems to it's like such a perspective of like complete acknowledgement of everything that she's done and accepting the guilt, accepting all of that. But I couldn't help but think that there still was a mental disconnect between what she was doing and any emotional reaction from it. Yeah, definitely. It feels like there's this dissociative like disorder. Like she was, she went into this other space, this like rage space that allowed her to be kind of ironically calm yeah. uh, in the the eye of the storm. Yeah. Is there a syndrome? Eye of the storm syndrome? <laughs> she feels very much like she was emotionally in the middle of this emotional storm and that allowed her to both see clearly and, uh, and take such violent action. Um, and, and, you know, she exists in this world. I, I really, I want to talk about some of the other standout characters. Cause there, I mean, there are a lot of people in this yeah, movie, right? but, but we need to talk uh, about Jared Harris who plays Andy Warhol and seeing where he has come in his career, uh, going back <laughs> to revisit this, the, the wigged Warhol, uh, version of Harris was a real treat. I mean, I had seen him in films before this without realizing who he was because he when he was still just one of the faces. He's a bit player. Yeah. And stuff yeah. like Far and Away, Last of the Mohicans, The Public Eye, Natural Born Killers, Smoke, Blue in the Face. Like he did a lot of 
bit parts all the way through these films. And I, I largely in this film, I think he's still is he's a, you know, a performing and he's performing obviously an incredibly famous character, but he's so is low key in the role playing from what I saw of some, some, Andy Warhol clips. He, he really kind of is capturing that low key nature that Andy Warhol has, but it's not until much later. Um, geez, probably in the, I don't know when he really started taking off for me. I don't know. I feel like Benjamin Button is where, I, where I really started noticing him. Yeah. And he really seems to kind of, uh, take off from there. But I mean, I don't think that's really completely fair because he's been acting since the late eighties in just and always busy in bit parts. Yeah, uh, it it it's crazy and he's so good. I mean, he so embodies the character even though he is a really unique like he's not one of those generic looking and sounding guys. Like he really no. has his own tone and yet I mean, he just disappears into Warhol for me. He just disappears. Well, uh, yeah, I think he's just really capturing that laid back American character who just um is chill who always seems just kind of there and I, I i there's it's almost like this disconnect from things but i don't know if that's completely fair i i just feel like uh, i i feel like it's almost observational like that's that's kind of how i was reading andy warhol the way that he's portraying is is he's just observing things that's that are going on and he's kind of taking all of that in which i i think may be kind of a lot of the style of warhol as both an artist and a filmmaker yeah yeah I, you, you said natural born killers. I'd forgotten he was even in it. That's really interesting. Um, someone who's had, had quite an extensive career, far greater, uh, extent of a career, uh, in show business than even Jared Harris is Martha Plimpton, who, you know, she's a goonie. She's a goonie. She is the friend here. I mean, she's playing Stevie. She's the friend. She's, uh, you know, helping, uh, Valerie as she kind of moves through life. And I think she's, I mean, she's great. She's a great confidant. It was fun to see her in this kind of a role. Yeah, she was. I, I I couldn't help but wish there was more of her. Like, I felt like it was exciting to see her pop up a few times uh, earlier on in the film. And then she kind of disappears from it for a while and and drops in as needed, I felt. Uh, and I suppose that's probably how it felt for her in Valerie's yeah. world anyway. But still, I thought she did well in the role. I really enjoyed seeing her again. She's just one of those people I always loved seeing from early on, like the Goonies, the Mosquito Coast and Running on Empty, stuff like that. Like she always was fun to see. And so I think she's uh, she's great here. Who else really stands out to you in in the cast? Who else do you want to talk about? I mean, Michael Imperioli is is one of the the people who is kind of a Warhol uh, I don't know if they're real groupies or whatever, but he certainly is a face that that people have grown to see, I think, um, largely because The Sopranos, that was the big the big thing that he was in, um, but certainly is a, a very popular actor. But for me, the other big standout in the film was Stephen Dorff playing Candy Darling. I, um, yeah. I think that he was uh, really great to see him in this role that was just not what I am kind of generally associate with Stephen Dorff. He seems like such a a masculine actor in kind of these more action types of roles and, and seeing him doing something like this, I thought was really great. I'm like, this is nice to see him taking this totally different shift in his career to play uh, candy darling and uh, really pull it off. I thought incredibly well, I really enjoyed uh, him throughout the film. Yeah. I mean, talk about a movie that demonstrates an actor's range. I think he just 
nailed it. And it, it you know, you go back and, and think about it. like for, for me, I knew Stephen Dorff from Blade. Like that's yeah. 1998. That's when I took notice of Stephen Dorff. And um, uh, but but man, the guy has chops to be able to so beautifully embody Candy Darling um, as an acolyte of and and inspir- inspiration to Andy Warhol. And, and I mean, it was just terrific. And I thought it was just terrific. Now, it's an interesting part because, you know, he's playing Candy Darling and there is uh, another actor playing Jeremiah Newton. Uh, Danny Morgenstern's playing Jeremiah Newton. And the movie is actually based on Jeremiah, Jeremiah Newton's book uh, about his experience with Candy Darling. Uh, in the world of Andy Warhol. And the book is called My Face for the World to See, The Diaries, Letters, and Drawings of Candy Darling, Andy Warhol Superstar. And it's hard to get. I think you can pay $1,000 to get a hardcover copy of it on Jeez. Amazon. Uh, it, it is not in print. It hasn't been kindled. It's, um, it's, uh, it's just, uh, you know, your mileage may vary, but that's the, uh, that's the book. And so, like, this all comes from these tales of Candy Darling's experience in this in this world and her as a as a diarist, which I think is interesting because so much of the so much of the book is focused or so much of the movie is focused on Valerie Solanas experience writing her scum manifesto uh, that uh, it's it's easy to get lost in the fact that that's not actually what the book is or what the movie is based upon in its tale. Well, and it's interesting because looking at the origin of this story, um, you know, Mary Heron, she had been writing. She she did a lot of writing as a music journalist for a while for Punk Magazine. Yeah. She was the first um, a first journalist to actually interview the Sex Pistols for an American publication, Amazing. very into the punk scene, and uh, was trying to kind of figure out her what she wanted to do. She was doing a uh, going to do a documentary. She was producing edge on pbs which explored pop culture and that's where she kind of learned about valerie solanas wanted to do this story and suggested let's do this and they um we're going to do it as a documentary but they actually pushed her to develop it into this feature film and she says actually andy warhol uh, actually helped sell her on the idea of focusing on solanas not him in the film which is interesting and that seems so Warhol, doesn't it? Like that, just knowing the little I know, totally, that's a Warhol thing. Oh, darling, make me a, make me a bit player. Right, right, right. But I, I think that using these, these other, you know, properties, uh, well, and I think a lot of it was when they were trying to find stuff to use of Valerie Solanas for this documentary, they could find nothing. Like there was no footage of her. It, it was hard getting people who would agree to talk about her on camera and all this sort of stuff. Like there just wasn't much out there. And so that's why they they decided to kind of do this fictional version. But I think that's also why they probably latched on to using this other book that focused more on the relationship with Candy Darling to help get into that world. So we could see more yeah. of like what was going on with, with kind of the, the kind of the way that there was that connection with Newton and, and Darling and all that sort of stuff in, in this particular period of time. I, I couldn't find out, you know, early in the movie, there are some clips, some old footage that's put brought into the film of, you know, girls playing and beating each other up on a playground. Um, do you happen to know if that was legit Valerie Solanas 
footage or did they recreate that? You know, I could find nothing. I also looked to see if that was actual real footage or if it was um, something. I'm assuming that they didn't get permission. They didn't find any family members who had, I mean, the way that Solanus grew up, I kind of didn't have a sense that they probably had a camera like a, to be filming family footage. Yeah. So yeah, my sense, sense was they probably created it for the film. Stylistically, it's interesting because it does, even though it's, you know, I'm, I'm taking it as sort of a foregone conclusion that all this stuff was recreated for the film. Yeah. It feels in position in parts very much like a documentary, like it moves in and out of this sort of fictionalized tale, um, it, you know, I, I think intelligently. And uh, again, that coupled with sort of moving us through time, I think it effectively tells her story in, you know, as as solid a way as you can get without it being, you know, without having a character that you like spending time with. Yeah. And it's and it is interesting because, like you said, we it's hard to spend time with her, but we do have those moments like there are a few moments where she's trying to find connection, you know, like we see her at one of Andy's parties and and she's kind of pining for this woman who's across the room and and having trying to have these conversations with her because she thinks she's actually really beautiful and and wants to create a connection there but again a lot of it is valerie's personality it's really kind of pushes people away because it's very abrasive and it's a little difficult to take and so you can see when she's having these you know trying to create these connections with these people that they're just not they're not clicking because it's she's a she is a harder person to connect with. And so I think that makes it hard. And I think that also helps us empathize with her because we see she's like everyone. She's just trying to find a connection with another person. Yeah. Yeah, she is. She's got uh, it's that weird sort of frontal lobe thing that bit that's flipped where every conversation. I think this is one of the things that, that Lily Taylor does really well. Every conversation that gets started becomes a conversation about her. Yeah. Uh, right. I don't think she asks somebody else a question that isn't self-serving in some way, shape, or form throughout the entire film. She's not. Uh, she's she's a uh, uh, a social creature that just takes. Yeah. And and that fuels a lot of the rage. Right. That fuels a lot of the rage. It feels like she's you know she can manifest that sense that she can feel herself being ignored. And and Lily Taylor. I mean, we just have to talk about Lily Taylor a bit because I mean she had been performing up before this i mean she had certainly been around for i think she started acting in the late 80s and she's having a baby mystic pizza say anything we just talked about her last week on born on the fourth of july and i mean this is uh, 96 when she's doing this this is her 18th film yeah i mean she yeah. had she had been doing a lot of work just largely in much smaller bit parts i think dogfight may have been the biggest role she had up to this point um Say anything, certainly. Uh, I don't know. Mystic Pizza JoJo, she was pretty big. So I I, I don't know. I, I think she's I just probably... feel like Say Anything was the most like iconic of those character performances. I feel like that's certainly. the one that's most memorable for me, for sure. She said she was a great friend. Yeah, she was. Yeah. So uh, certainly somebody who's been doing great work all this time. Somebody who I think from this film, people were kind of expecting her to get a lot more notice and, and to find some more solid bigger roles that I just don't think ever really manifested. And I don't know if that's because she is one of those kind of indie actors who seems to perform better and prefer working in the indie scene rather than in the big film scene. I mean, she did like the haunting a few years after that. That was probably like her uh, and ransom actually the same year. Yeah. I, I think that she 
fluctuates between the bigger Hollywood stuff and the smaller films. But I feel like she, when you look at her career, largely it's, it's, bigger roles in the indie films and then she seems to dip into the the hollywood scene to just take supporting roles just to kind of probably fuel her uh kind of keep her pocketbook full you know it wasn't long ago that i sat down and watched public enemies uh michael mann's film from 2009 with johnny depp and and she's in it and i couldn't have told you that right (laughs) talk about a bit part like i don't actually remember her role um in that movie which Maybe says more about the movie. But then like, you know, a few years later, she did The Conjuring. And I totally like that was I loved seeing her pop up and that. And she did a great job with that and um, came back with the same kind of horror vibe with The Nun a few years later. Oh, she was in Almost Human. What a show that should not have been canceled. Carl Urban, Michael Ely and Minka Kelly. What a great, fun science fiction show that was. I totally remember her in that show. She was great. Fox. A lot of remember? TV. Oh, uh, that's right. You don't watch TV. Holy <laughs> beloy. <laughs> yeah, six, but I mean, yeah, TV also. Six Feet Under, yeah. Hemlock Grove, American Crime, Perry Mason. She was just uh, in that quite a bit. She's also somebody who doesn't actually appear to age. Like she has a, that face where I think she could go play the say anything role today. <laughs> you know, you might have something to that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Camera, Ellen Kuras. The vibe of this film, the changes that they choose to go between black and white for the manifesto uh, stand-ups that they're doing and just everything else. It feels very kind of raw, gritty documentary. Like it definitely has a feel that I think captures this time, this place, this world. Yeah. Quite well. And Ellen Curris, I mean, we've talked about her. I mean, had already, yeah, she had already been working quite a bit before this. And um, I mean, really takes off after this with um, with Spike Lee. We talked about her recently on Bamboozled when we did that. Um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Eternal Mind. Eternal Sunshine. Yeah. So certainly that, that one is the one busy. that has the most sort of uh, parallel, sort of visual parallel to to this film. Like, I feel like a, a, the, the way the film handles time passing and the, the internal experience of time on film, I think, is really yeah. smart uh, with, a, you know, in um, partnership with Keith Reamer and uh, the edit booth. I think it was great. Definitely a film that uh, the editing was uh, was pretty important, just kind of compressing the time as we kind of flew through the the decade and then the, those last few years. And and then knowing when to cut in with those bits of the manifesto and how they would tie in, because that's always tricky I, when you're telling a story like this and then you have something that's not part of the story, but is an informing element for the story that just kind of gets thrust in periodically that can be tricky to determine when best to lay that in. And so, yeah, Keith Reamer, along with Mary Heron, I think they found a way to bring those pieces of the scum manifesto in that worked. Like it never pulled me out of the film. It always actually helped kind of inform what was going on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when she's reading about the, the failed chromosome, uh, yeah. talking about the XY chromosome and uh, she's doing it over like you you can see her clearly writing something in her lab notebook and she's studying psychology in school and she's ha- holding a rat by its tail and uh, uh, that sort of thematic background to the narration made the narration more meaningful than just some other random voiceover like I think she I think it was smart and um, uh, because it, it could become voiceover heavy 
really quickly. Yeah. Uh, and and I think this movie avoids that. Yeah. And uh, what I love about the Scum Manifesto is it allows us to have some form of voiceover without having to do kind of narration about like mm -hmm. her life. It just it puts us into her mental space and the way that she's seeing things. So I, I found it yeah. incredibly effective. John Cale, man behind the music. Yeah, interesting uh, uh, kind of controversy with the music because John Cale was uh, of the Velvet Underground, wrote the score for this, and Lou Reed apparently protested it quite a bit, had issues with Cale doing the music for this particular film. I'm not exactly sure why. I think it was just because it was perhaps focusing on on Valerie, and uh, I, I, I didn't find any specifics. Did you read anything about that? No, just the same that you did, that same sort of controversy. I don't know, I don't know why that uh, Lou Reed was so upset about that, but he certainly was, uh, notwithstanding the fact that the music, I think, was great. Yeah, the music is great. They had, I mean, the music itself is good, and then they had Yola Tango. They played a band that was supposed to be kind of a Velvet Underground-ish type of band in the film, which I, I I thought they did a great job kind of playing that vibe throughout, but I think the music works. And uh, so, yeah, I, I just, I would love to know really what was going on with Lou Reed and John Cale about kind of the, the background of this. Um, obviously there's a lot of connection. I, I think it's one of those things where when you're personally connected to a story, I think it, you know, it ends up potentially opening up a lot of wounds. And I think that can be, that's that's all I can think of is there must be something like that 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 happened with all of this. He's done a lot of he's done a lot of movies uh, and and his his top four on IMDb American Psycho. Great. The Beach. Great score. Brick. Come on. And Smoke and Aces. Well, and to be just just to point out, the Beach, Brick, and Smoke and Aces, they're all because the soundtracks. I think that they probably that, just that's had, just a, yeah, because he's on the soundtrack. Yeah, because he right. wrote wrote some of the songs that happened to yeah. play in those films. Right. I think actual composer for but a movie. American though, he's still Psycho. Is very busy. He, he is a composer on that one. And um, and then in between the two, between this and that, he'll he'll do Basquiat also. So certainly, I think connecting that's another one that kind of connects with kind of the 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 world of this story yeah right how to do it award season i mean it's an indie film it wasn't um hugely noticed uh it was and i say it's an indie film it's a hard one to watch and i think because of that it didn't get a lot of recognition it had five wins seven other nominations at con film festival it played in the uh i think uncertain regard and it ended up um getting nominated for the golden camera but lost to love serenade at the Film Independent Spirit Awards, it was nominated for Best First Feature for Mary Heron, but lost to Billy Bob Thornton's Sling Blade. And at Sundance yeah. Film Festival, Lily Taylor actually won a special jury prize for her acting. The film itself was nominated for uh, the Grand Jury Prize for a Dramatic Film, but lost to Todd Solance's Welcome to the Dollhouse. I don't think I have a problem with any of those. Although I haven't seen Love Serenade. I haven't seen Love Serenade either. I can't speak to that, but... Um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it but is the sling blade a, loss. That feels, that feels about right. I certainly Sorry, agree. Sling blade. Mm. <laughs> uh, well then I guess we have to talk about the box office, man. This one probably put you to work. Even though this is a relatively recent film, it is working on an indie budget, so I could find nothing 
about how much Heron had to work with initially. And knowing that it was originally planned as a TV documentary, it means the budget likely was even more difficult to track down. I, there was just nothing out there. This movie did release May 1st, 1996, and was obviously the limited release indie film among bigger films like The Quest, The Truth About Cats and Dogs, Mulholland Falls, and Sunset Park. This also opened opposite another indie favorite, Cemetery Man. What a fun one that one is. This film played limited indie theaters for about two-thirds of a year and ended up earning just under $1.9 million all told, or just over $3 million in today's dollars. Unfortunately, without the budget info, that is about as far as I can get. So we'll have to make it up. That's right. (laughs) It did great. It was fantastic. Well, it's a it's a hell of a movie to kick off the series. I didn't I didn't I don't know what I expected going into I shot Andy Warhol. I didn't know anything about the story. I didn't know anything about what it was about the true story. I didn't I mean I I didn't I don't think I actually even knew that Andy Warhol was shot. Yeah, I think I think until this movie came out, I don't think I knew that either. And honestly, I don't think I knew that he survived it. Like, I think I saw this title and just assumed, oh, I didn't know that he had been murdered. That's how he died. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and that was actually interesting for me, honestly, watch or reading the end, kind of the footnotes at the end of the film about how she was in this in uh, place for the criminally insane for like, I don't know, three years, 10 years. I can't remember how long yeah. it was. And then she was released and was in and out of like homelessness until she died, like living on the streets. And I was like, wow, that is a dark way for her life to go. Like clearly nobody bothered checking to see is there help that they could have provided yeah. her, which was just real tragic. Um, and then Andy Warhol, it was interesting to see, yes, he survived, but this was certainly something that affected him for the rest of his life. And, and, um, you know, he died in the mid eighties and it was, it was something that I think right up to the end was, uh, difficult for him. And you saw that interesting scene when he's, you know, going somewhere and there's a, a like a bang, like a car backfires or something. And it's, it's, it's very much that PTSD sort of reaction, like, you know, uh, still living in that moment. And, uh, I yeah. can, I can imagine. So I found it to be, uh, an interesting and eye-opening bit of history that I just knew nothing about. I did too. And so I don't know how, I, you know, I think that, I think that might have impacted my rating of the film. Uh, okay. I enjoyed my experience with it. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure where I'm going to land on the stars even yet. So let's even take a that. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this fair show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flickchart, it should take you straight to this movie in the flickchart database where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. All right. First up, we have I Shot Andy Warhol or Il Postino, the postman. Il Postino. Il Postino. I Shot Andy Warhol or Rabid. Rabid. I'll take Rabid. I Shot Andy Warhol or Labor Day. I shot Andy Warhol. I'll take Labor Day. There's just so much more interesting stuff going on in Andy Warhol. Yeah, you're right. I'll 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 give you Andy War, Andy Warhol. I shot Andy Warhol or post mortem. I'll take post mortem. Yeah. I shot Andy Warhol or Star Trek Into Darkness. <laughs> you know, I'm a nerd. Yeah. Yeah, I got problems with Star Trek Into Darkness, but I, I am a too. nerd. I know. I'll take Star Trek also. All right, Star Trek. I shot Andy Warhol or Conan the Barbarian. I shot Andy Warhol. I'll take Conan. All right, I'll give it to you. Okay. I shot Andy Warhol or Amor. I'll take Amor. Yes, I will also take Amor. Enthusiastically. (laughs) I shot Andy Warhol or Gone with the Wind. I shot Andy Warhol. 
mean, there are good things about Gone with the Wind. I'll say Gone with the Wind. Ah, uh, let's do it. All right, here we go. One, One two, two, three. three. Scissors. All right, you get it. Oh, Gone with the Wind takes it. I shot Andy Warhol or Year of the Dragon. Andy Warhol. I'll take Andy Warhol also. Well, that lands I shot Andy Warhol in spot 439 on our chart. 439 out of 502. That puts it at a 13%. 13%. That's pretty low. It is pretty low. I, I certainly didn't have that kind of an opinion of it in my own flick chart. How'd it do for yours? <laughs> it's a tricky film because it's a hard film to watch. It's not a film that I would jump back into right away. Uh, I think that the performances are are strong. It's an interesting story, but it is a hard story, story about an unlikable character. So that makes it challenging to watch. And because of that, it ended up doing fairly poorly on my flick chart. It landed in spot 3136 out of 4594 or a 32%. Interesting. I ended up at 558 out of 1495. That's a 63%, at which surprised me. I honestly thought it was going to fall straight to the bottom. Uh, but, you know, flick chart does what it does. Yeah. If I'm to go by the algorithm for letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be a three star film out of five. Wow. So torn on that. I see three stars and I think it's a better film than that. Maybe is it three and a half, four stars, but no heart? Is it two stars with a heart? I don't know what to do. (laughs) Well, for me, it ended up being three stars and no heart. That's where I am with this one. It's, it's a tough film and it's just, it's so hard to watch and, and want to rewatch. But I think that Lily Taylor is just shines in this role. It's a tough role to play and she owns it. She does such a great job with it, but it's a hard one. So three stars with no heart. All right, three stars, no heart. I'll do it too. Okay, that's where we sit. Three stars, no heart. And that means next week we get to move into American Psycho. That's right, American Psycho, Mary Heron's film from 2000 with uh, Christian Bale. Did you ever read the book? Nope. Brad Easton Ellis' book that it's based on? I did not. I just want to say, that's a book. It's the only book I, I can think of in my memory that as I was reading it, I remember that visceral feeling during certain sequences of needing to vomit. Wow. It was such a hard read in some places. Interesting. The movie doesn't even begin to approach how hard the, <laughs> the book is to read. So Fascinating. That anyway. is fascinating. Well, when the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. And thanks to our friends over at Letterboxd who do provide Nextreel members with a 20% discount for their upgrades on their memberships. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd. Mine is a three and a half star. I just went in the middle. I thought, here's the middle. I'm going to go in the middle. Okay. Uh, I know. I know. Uh, so, because they, they bring up some things in, in here that I really like. Okay, okay, I like that. Comes from Lester. Three and a half. This was always on IFC or Sundance growing up in high school, and I always had a certain fondness to it, especially Lily Taylor's performance, which I still think is excellent. I was also a huge Six Feet Under fan back then. On another note, great that we saw American Psycho before this because Taylor and Chloe Sevigny dominated the world of 90s American indie film. Strains itself a little too much in an effort to make Happening Factories seem cooler than it probably was. But seeing Yola Tango cosplay as the Velvet Underground was fun. 
One thing that I thought would age terribly is the portrayal of factory staple Candy Darling, but her character, played by Stephen Dorff, is arguably the most fleshed out of the whole group, including Andy. Because of Solanus's radical feminist theory explicitly front and center, this is probably the worst Women's History Month thing we're going to watch for March. I'm pretty satisfied <laughs> with the way she's sympathetically portrayed here while not letting her off the hook for any problematic things she has said or done in her life. The movie is particularly engrossing when the film is coming into terms with how Solanus is as a person. Three and a half stars. Thanks, Lester. Thanks. That's a good one. I thought you were going to read the one about Lou Reed's song. Yeah, but it's um, would take me about it's eight thousand words. It'd take oh. me about twenty five minutes to read. You should just you should just read that one part, um, just so we at least have it in the show. Okay, all right. Well, I'll do that. So this is from Sally Jane Black, who wrote an extended review with no uh, rating. It is clear why Lou Reed would be upset with this movie. His scathing rant of a song calls for Valerie Solanus's death, and it was written decades after the incident in question. It's a testament to Reed's ability to convey his pain and distress in such direct and simple lyrics. It's autobiographical more than anything else, and even when he sings about how sickness not being an excuse, I don't hear the bloodlust and cry for vengeance. But the agony and regret made all the clearer by the fact that he spends most of the song in his signature sing-talking about how Warhol remonstrated him for not visiting while he was in the hospital. To Lou Reed, Valerie Solanus wasn't a human being, which was, of course, the problem. Mm. Interesting. The song uh, that we're talking about here is uh, I Believe. Gotcha. Which you can find on YouTube. Well, thanks for that little bit of history. Uh, that's You're good welcome. to know. Now we have an answer. We do. Well, I have a two and a half star rated film by Bo Pratt. Bo has this to say about the film. It feels pretty reductive to center a picture on Valerie Solanus around her shooting Andy Warhol. And it feels pretty reductive to revolve as one praise of the picture about Valerie Solanus centered on Andy Warhol by mentioning foremost Jared Harris and his amazing wig. But that's what I'm doing. Jared Harris, <laughs> baby! <laughs> nice. There it is. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Letterboxd. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>